Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and host of this podcast. This week's episode completes a trilogy of sorts as Sean Nittner goes inside the Roleplay Studio. During the recording of this podcast we had a few audio difficulties and while Sean's audio is clear throughout there are areas where mine is muffled. However, I can assure you that anything that is of any importance I have re-recorded. So without further ado... My guest today is Sean Nittner from Oakland in California. How's it going, Sean? Hi, Daniel. I'm doing fantastic. Yourself? Uh, not too bad. It's a uh, day off tomorrow for me, so I'm pretty pleased about being able to stay up late and, and make this call. Oh, nice. Good for you. Uh, if anybody wants any more information about the show, you can go to pennyredpodcast.com or about uh, Victoria, go to victoriarpg.com. So for the sake of posterity and for listeners that perhaps don't know you, Sean, although I suspect that your audience is far larger than mine and they'll be listening in, um, how long have you been a role player? I started gaming when I was 12. Uh, there were kids sitting around in the middle school library, and uh, they certainly were not the cool kids, but they seemed cool to me. Uh, that's, I guess, how much of an outcast I must have been. Um, nevertheless, they were doing something around a table, and it sounded really exciting and engrossing. And every once in a while, I'd sort of listen in and hear them say, and I stabbed the orc. And I had no idea what an orc was, um, but stabbing sounded cool. And so I asked somebody, hey, can I play? And they said, yeah, you can be my henchman. You're a gnome that's tied up in a sack. (laughs) That's tantamount to a jersey. I said, I'm a gnome tied up in a sack. All right, I don't know what a gnome is, but sure. I I remember, you know, garden gnomes from that ancient, like, gnomes book. And I was like, okay, cool. uh, great, I'm, I'm in a sack, and uh, I spent the entire adventure doing nothing because I was tied up. Um, but I, I thought it was a grand adventure, just the same. I was pretty much hooked from then on. Going back to what you said about the uh, about the gnome book, I must have come from a Puritan school because uh, the gnome book had the picture where his, but- his buttocks are exposed, had those two pages glued together so he couldn't see. I remember that picture actually. And, uh, <laughs> It's indelibly etched in your uh, memory. Now, yes. You said that the first experience you had with that was the um, watching people play. Is that? Do you find that that's unusual? Because I got my start with uh, Choose Your Own Adventure and then Fighting Fantasy and then finally that game. I even think I heard a, an audio version of The Hobbit um, before I got into the game. So I was pretty familiar with the fantasy milieu. But is that a common thing that you find? Well, I think when I was um, first learning the game, when I, when I was first getting into it, that um, at the time there weren't a lot of other sort of uh, things that overlapped in a Venn diagram. There weren't a lot of activities that were like gaming. And right. so a lot of times I think, you know, certainly there were like choose your own adventure books like you described. But I think at that time gaming was largely transferred over purely by social circles. If you knew somebody mm-hmm. was a gamer, they yeah. might be desperate to find um, – desperate to find someone to play and they say hey play D&D with me you know, I had no idea what that meant but uh, sooner or later you were there totally turned off to it or completely hooked yeah, sooner um, or later you were the gnome stuck in a sack <laughs> yeah but um, but I think these days I would say certainly within the last five years many of the gamers that I that I've introduced or that I've been part of introducing the game have have come to gaming through something that was tangentially related um you had karen uh, on your interview last week and she's roped in three of three gamers that used that that well that still are improv actors right. and improv has a lot of 
overlap with gaming. And she said, you like that? You probably like this. Sure. Um, similarly, I've introduced a couple people to gaming that I played WoW with and I raided with them. And we weren't raiding on like an RP server. There was no role playing going on. I mean, we talked over vent and it was things mm-hmm. like, how do we kill this boss? There was no role playing at all going on. But they seem like cool people and they happen to live in the area. And so I said, hey, you know, you want to try this? It's the same kind of setting. It's just not the same activity at all as right. what we do when we play an MMO. And do you find that the people that enjoy the MMO, uh, or maybe even like first edition Dungeons and Dragons, prefer games where there is less role playing? Um, you know, I only know a very small handful of people that prefer games that are more crunchy and less role playing uh, involved. Um, and all of those people are extremely shy. Um, so I don't think it has a lot to do with, you know, being good at playing WoW, for instance, uh, is all about learning timing and moves and all this stuff that is utterly inapplicable, in my opinion, to, to playing a role-playing game. And I've had plenty of people that have played WoW that jump in and play, you know, ridiculous school teachers with a crush on their student. You know, nothing at all about, like, swords and sorcery and, and, and then really to jump in. Um, the players I know that really want to just sort of make a combat monster and can sort of play the game through the dice mechanics and not really engage in the narrative mm-hmm. are generally extremely shy or very nervous about, you know, getting it wrong. And so they want to have something on paper so they feel like, well, the paper tells me to do this, and so that's what I do. Yes. I was thinking along the lines also of the fact that something like World of Warcraft or, like I say, Dungeons & Dragons almost has a score element to it. You've got to get gold and get experience points and you're leveling up and that's the ultimate goal is to improve your character rather than to have a true role-playing experience. Yeah, yeah, certainly. No, there's definitely a sense... There's definitely um, a sense that the... The reward in that game is um, like a, a rat in a maze. You know, it's like finding the cheese. Like, oh, I got, I got more cheese. I got more cheese. I got more cheese. I'm hoarding up more and more cheese. I have more points. I have more gears. I have more loots. Um, and and I think that that, in some regard, I think that 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 reward system can be transferable to role playing games. And that there's, you know, D and D is a game about killing monsters and taking their stuff. Right. And you can see in fourth edition D and D that they modeled a lot of the game play after MMOs, um, specifically World of Warcraft, um, to replicate that sort of experience of you master your skill at doing this thing and then you get more loots and more toys because of it. Um, I, that, that, that style of game really doesn't appeal to me. So I don't tend to do it very much, and so I can't really speak on behalf of people that are in that mode. Right. I mean, I've done it, I've played d and I've even played D&D with people that I really consider to be, like, hardcore, kill the monster, take the loot gamers. Right. Uh, it, it, there's no narrative there, there's no story arc, there's no character development, there's no tragedy. Eh, it just doesn't do it for me, so... Sure. That comment that you made about 4th edition trying to appeal to the World of Warcraft gamer inspired a a section that I had in my book about um, trying to accommodate all the different types of players that you might have at your table. And one of the types of players that identified as as being a possibility was somebody who was into World of Warcraft, like an MMO, whatever. (laughs) I've never actually played World of Warcraft, so I couldn't say for sure. But do you find that uh, the criticism of fourth edition being like a an online game is based off the impressions of 
people that have played both or of people that are reluctant to change? Because role players, or at least some sections of the role playing community, are very much. I've played Dungeons and Dragons for 20 years and I, and I like it. I'm not going to change anything. You get people at the other end as well, but do you think that a lot of that vocal opposition to the fourth edition was from those hardcore, say, third or second or even first edition people? Yes, I think that there were people that were, you know, third third more so than any uh, edition, I think, or, or 3.5, more so than any edition. And again, I, I'm kind of speaking out of my element because I'm a hippie indie gamer that likes, you know, to resolve things with interpretive dance, you know. I, I mean, I, I, I like ridiculous uh ridiculously kind of what i call emo porn which is you know characters that are just all tragedy and all yeah. we care about well, is watching suffer if you can't resolve something with interpretive dance i mean i think it's uh, insoluble really right what's the point right so so again i i may not have the most credentials to 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 uh answer this question but having played 3.5 having talked to a lot of gamers that are are, are fans of it um if you've even played World of Warcraft a little bit or any other MMO, you see the way they create niches. And in 3.5, I think a big problem was that it was far too easy for someone to build a character that covered all these niches. Um, and so uh, whereas in older editions of, of D&D, it was like, well, the thief could do these things and the wizard could do these things, or the magic user, rather, back in first edition, and the fighter could do these things um, – as 3.5 allowed you to really tweak your character, it was essentially, I can do everything I'd ever want to do, and I can do it in any flavor I want to do it. Like, I can kill the heck out of stuff with my big sword, or I can do it with my little daggers, or I can do it with my spells, but I can also get through puzzles and deal with social interactions and just sort of do everything I'd ever want to do, face every kind of obstacle. And so niche protection got completely lost in 3.5. Right. Like, right. like, it wasn't about, can I fill a role? It was about, can I make a more powerful character than the guy on my left? Because right. if I can't, then he's going to outshine me every day of the week. But we want and that, don't we? Don't we want to have more people in the hobby? And if we have to attract them by throwing together what some people consider a cheese ball game, then, then is that something that we a sacrifice that we're prepared to make? Obviously, some people obviously aren't, but from my standpoint, the more people you get into gaming, the better. Now, some of them may drop off. They may not play anything other than 4th edition, but there have to be some people who make the transition from uh, an online role-playing game to a pen-and-paper role-playing game and then perhaps well, from there to... And, and I think that's what Fourth was all about. So Fourth sort of re-established that niche protection, and it, and it did it very overtly. Like there was no subtlety at all to the way they did it. They said these are these t classes of characters. You have defenders, you have strikers, you have controllers. And the problem is that everybody who had played any bit of WoW went, oh, you just mean you have tanks and deepsers and healers. Like, mm -hmm. like that's you just renamed these established things. And now you've made these niches so that you can no longer do everything. You have to fill a certain niche. And it makes it so that as a party, you feel balanced. Like everybody has a role, which I think is really cool. But the problem is they were extremely overt about it. So that it was really easy to go, oh, they just did what WoW does. Right. And, um, and so, so I, d I don't think that 3.5 was a good thing for the hobby, actually. I, I don't think that 3.5 allowing... Because it removed niche protection and encouraged everyone to just game the system as hard as they could, right. I think it, allowed, it created a real sort of competitive play environment where everybody was trying to make the most broken, powerful character mm. they, they could. And fourth said, 
don't even try. You can't do it. You know, you, you're going to have to pick a role and stick to it, and you're going to need everyone else in the group. You can't just outshine everyone with your crazy, powerful character build. That sounds like they've gone more back to the first edition, and yet they're talking about the fifth edition, which is supposed to go back to first principles. So which do you suppose they mean by first principles, like first edition where you've got that niche protection, or do you think they mean like 3.5? Uh, I think anything? I think they very much, very much were going for the earlier edition, the earlier co concept, the, the first edition format of, you know, each person does a certain thing, and they they happen to codify those roles in ways that was uh, completely analogous to those roles in in uh, MMORPGs. So they they went, let's get back to that first edition feel, and let's do it by the way of following WoW. So what do you think the next edition is going to be? Because there's been a bit of uh, chatter on the internet that there is another edition coming. They're trying to get back their original, uh, try and win back their original gamers. So do you suppose they actually mean they're trying to do that? Or do you think they're trying to win back the 3.5ers? I think they're trying to get back the 3.5ers. Because when 4th came out and there was such an outrage about how much it was like, wow, uh, Pathfinder took off and became 3.75 and took a large portion of the D&D audience towards uh, to it. And Pathfinder, in my opinion... Um, really was an improvement along both. I think there was a split of the 3.5 gamer one way and the fourth ed gamer another way. And Pathfinder really picked up a lot of those 3.5 fans and, and, right. and took off with it and did, did some great things. I really think Pathfinder is actually a, a pretty excellent product. Um, and fifth, I think is trying to win back the Pathfinder audience. Yeah. I really can't say anything about it though. I've read a few tiny bits that m mostly I think, D&D has become such a monolithic beast that it can never be everything to everyone. Like, right. no matter what anybody does with it, there's going to be people that are pissed off because no one can actually capture the D&D, the, the, the diverse ideas of what D&D is to how large the audience is. Yeah. Like, it's just split so boy if you're not going to be able to have a nerd rage about something, though, right? Yeah, right. It's better to it, feel it, something than feel nothing. Um, <laughs> so what games do you play now? Uh, currently, I'm playing a primetime adventures game uh, over over Skype, and uh, that is PTA. Uh, if you're not familiar, is a um, a game set around uh, being a, part of the Parent Teachers Association. Yeah, it, it's it's set around uh, the idea of a television show. Right. So you're, you play members of the cast, and uh, you each have different screen presences. So each episode, the 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 episode might focus on a different person, so not everybody is as important in every episode, but over the arc of the season, you all have the same level of importance. And it's a game, at least the way we play it, where we are we step really step back from the actor role um, quite a bit and look a lot. And we I think the four of us that play, I mean, there's there's three players and one GM. The four of us that play all take a very directorial stance where we were often saying, hey, what would be awesome for the story? So even though we're sort of playing our own characters, there's a lot of times where we spend me like, dude, dude, I'd so love it if your character caught me right now and you like walked in the scene and, you know, and saw me do this thing. And there's a lot of sort of the traditional definition, the traditional divide of like you control your character and I control mine is really blurred in that game. And for me, because it's a game that I play with people that I trust a lot, that have a lot of the same kind of um, cinematic sensibilities as I do, it works great. Like, yeah. it's fantastic. Um, it might not be everybody's cup of tea, because I think some people will be like, hey, step off my character. Right. But um, 
But uh, in this case, it's fantastic. And our game is a, a dystopian future where genetic, where people have figured out ways to be genetically resequenced and it's illegal and we're the cops that, that, that catch these sort of superhuman people and put them down. And, and uh, in the draw, it's a total cop drama. And it's, it's all about our, our characters' conflicts with each other, much more so than the crimes that, we, uh, that we're pursuing. Right. So, Along those lines, when you were talking about getting into each other's characters' business, but, but you have that, that trust there, one of the games that I never really got an opportunity to play, but which I wish I had had more opportunity to play, is Wraith. And that whole concept of having the shadow mm-hmm. was something that I would really like to have played. Did you ever play a Wraith game? No, I'm familiar with the setting, and I did play quite a few World of Darkness games, but I've never played Wraith. I did, I did understand that one person was a character, and the other, another player played their specter and sort of loomed over them as mm. uh, a devil's advocate. Or, uh, but I, I never actually played the game itself. My goal is to get somebody on the show that uh, has experience with that. So if there's somebody out there listening at the moment that's played some Wraith and has experience with that whole shadow and shadow guide thing, then email me, daniel at hazardgaming.com, and I'll get you on the show. I'll keep an eye out as well, Daniel, and oh, let you know if I find anybody. So what is your favorite book or supplement, other than Victoria, of course? Other than Victoria. Well, I was, thank you, because that was going to be a hard... Uh, it's going to be, you know, it's gonna be a hard sell. But so taking Victoria from the number one place and just sort of setting it aside for, sure. for a moment... It's, it's um, uh, it is a, it's still a very hard, it's still a very hard, uh, sell for me because there's two games that I absolutely adore and to. will play for the rest of my life. Um, Burning Wheel and Apocalypse World. Um, Apocalypse World specifically because it creates a sense of desperation. Like everybody is trapped in a tiny glass bottle and all the air is running out mm-hmm. and everything you do, you can never escape each other. Cause every time you, any action you take is like a, uh, is like a BB bouncing around inside that glass bottle. It shreds everything up inside. You can never get outside of the bottle. And, um, y- and that bottle is kind of suffocating you. There's, there's always a shortage of food. There's always a shortage of freedom. There's always a shortage of, of every kind of basic human necessity. And, and it forces you to kind of constantly be turning in on each other and making some sort of sacrifices and, and, and deciding what, what matters to you. It sounds like it requires a particularly uh, mature group. Um, I don't know. It, the, 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 the reason why I'm so enamored with the game is that the dice mechanics and the presentation of the game is such that I've taken, I mean, I run into cons and I've taken total strangers and really gotten them very quickly invested in the urgency of the situation. So I think what Apocalypse World does so wonderfully is conveys that sense of desperation and establishes buy-in very early on so that you don't spend the entire game trying to get the players to be like, come on, guys, care about this thing. This is really important. That's crucial. Which I think a lot of other games say, oh, we have this awesome setting, but then the mechanics don't actually enforce it. So as a GM, you're trying to you're trying to put the characters in difficult situations where they have to make hard choices, but they don't feel like they're difficult because they don't care about the outcome and they, they don't personally feel a sort of sense of pressure on them. Um, it is why in particular, I didn't like the hack of it called dungeon world, even though I'm a fan of fantasy because dungeon world doesn't have that sense of desperation. And it's not like, you know, in, in apocalypse world, if the guy who owns the well has been giving you mud water and pissing you off, you can go shoot that guy in the street, but then who's going to operate the well? 
And if you find somebody that's going to operate the well, chances are he's got some horrible disease that don't, won't let him get out of the house. And you've got to find a doctor to take care of him. But the doctor hates you because you're sleeping with his wife. Right. You know, there's all these like just sort of like constantly build up of tension. Whereas in Dungeon World, it's like I kill a kobold. I kill another kobold. I kill 15 kobolds. Right. And it doesn't matter. Every kobold you kill doesn't affect the story. doesn't affect your character. It's like, yeah, you killed kobolds or orcs or I think that's more to do with people being able to identify with a post-apocalyptic world because many gamers, or certainly gamers my age, have been bombarded, is not quite the right word, but have had a lot of images and had to on a personal level, consider the effects of a thermonuclear war. I know when I was growing up um, in the mid-80s when I was becoming aware of you know, global politics and all that sort of stuff, the, uh, the, the day, what is it called, the morning after? Mm-hmm. That thing, or the day—I can't remember what it's called now. The day after, maybe it's called not the morning after. That's a pill, isn't it? Um, the, the day after, where, <laughs> where you had, uh, where there was, they dropped the bomb, and and uh, they were dealing with sort of the aftermath of that, and that made me very aware of um, a, po- a post-apocalyptic worlds and the and I had to put myself in that situation like what am I going to do how far away is New Zealand from where any of these large bombs are going to go off am I screwed anyway because of this um this nuclear winter that's going to happen and so it I on a personal level I I can identify with the post-apocalyptic world whereas I've got no frame of reference at least not from a from a visceral uh, perspective for um you know a Dungeons and Dragons type world do you think that plays a part I'm I I Maybe I would have said that some time ago, but because I've hacked the snot out of Apocalypse World, I've hacked it to Battlestar Galactica, which is arguably still post-apocalyptic. It's just post-apocalyptic in space. Mm-hmm. And I've also hacked it to the Deadwood setting, the HBO series Deadwood, yeah. which is not apocalyptic at all, except for it's just very desperate. It's on the fringe of society. But sure. there's no sense that like humans as a, as a species are, are threatened, but very much your little establishment on the edge of of, of civilization is very much threatened um and i've heard quite a few other hacks that don't really have anything to do with apocalypse and i'm going to be doing my own dark sun hack of it which is you know desert fantasy everybody you know water and metal are super rare and so and i think in all those scenarios that sense of desperation that sense of there's never quite enough comes Mm -hmm. through and it doesn't necessarily have to be post-apocalyptic um so i i don't know i mean i certainly see where you see where you're coming from i certainly see that we have a, a it means something to us in our in our you know current time and era uh in our in our own experiences to to consider what uh, a nuclear fallout would, would look like but i think anytime you 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 put somebody in a situation where you say you're always scraping um you can create that desperation i don't think it needs to be you know post-nuclear fallout. In, in fact, the, the apocalypse games I've run, I've often done as um, semi-biblical in that they're after the flood. Right. And so, like, it's not that there was a, a bomb going off. It's that, it, it's that nobody really remembers before when there was land, but it's all been flooded, and now there's just, like, nothing left. And, sure. and you, at best, you live in a, a tiny little swamp amongst sure. an ocean. But you mentioned two games that you were enamored with forever. Yes. The other one that I play all the time and it's the, actually the other game that I'm playing right now is Burning Wheel right. and uh, while Apocalypse World has a very simple elegant resolution system that just constantly kind of 
keeps spinning problems onto each other because if you do things, bad things will happen. It's, it's a really elegant system. Burning Wheel, I would also argue, is very elegant, but it's all it's it's much crunchier, much heavier, much. Um, and, and it's it's funny because in general, I'm very sort of opposed to heavy, crunchy systems. But Burning Wheel was one of those games where if you spent the time to learn it, and I've played like sixty some odd games of Burning Wheel at this point, so I've I, I've gotten familiar with it. Um, it is extremely rewarding to be invested. And I play with veteran Burning Wheel players, and our games are so – they cut to the bone so hard. I mean, the very, last night we played a game where in the middle of a, of a, of a huge battle, my character turned to uh, this woman who he had been traveling with and had fallen in love with, and she had betrayed him for the final time. And his goal in the fight with her was to get her to consent that she was a she had lied to him for the last time and he was going to cut out her lying tongue. <laughs> and the only reason he did not do this, the only reason why he did not pull the dirt from his belt and slice off her, out her tongue right there in the middle of it all was that she revealed to him that she was actually his bastard older sister. <laughs> and it was so heartbreaking. Like it was, yeah. it tore our characters apart um, to do this because she had sworn to never tell. She had sworn to to their mutual father that he would, she would never tell him. And and he hated her so much in that moment, which he was so betrayed because he was so in love with her. And then that that whole like this wasn't the Luke Leia kind of <laughs> oh cutesy love. This was the George R. R. Martin. No, he wanted to bed her love mm-hmm. and. Then he finds out that she's his sister, and that complicates that. And he still doesn't trust her, though. She's betrayed him so many times. It it was just like... And a worse betrayal, too, because she knows that he's the half-brother, right? Yes, yes, she knew all along. And she had been lying to him forever. And it was just one more lie that she had been keeping from him. And with the mechanics of the system, which is called a duel of wits, where you have a social argument... uh, he was so, so close to winning, and his, his, his stakes were that he cuts out her tongue. Her stakes were that he, uh, he had basically been lying about who he was. There was mm. Even though he considers himself an extremely honorable person, he had been lying about his identity to protect his family because if anyone had known that his family was doing what they were doing, uh, it would mean that, all, that his brother, which was a, a political hostage, would be killed. So he was right. hiding who he was so that his brother wasn't killed. And you uh, the brother is an NPC, but the but the character that he was fighting with, the sister, is a PC. Right. And um, and so without getting, going too far into the story, I don't want to bore the listeners with the nuances. Um, it was a huge deal for him to take back his name, and so that was their stakes. Is if she won, he took back his name. If he won, he cut out her tongue. Right. And uh, it was it was really climactic, and and that is. Uh, that that was a game that followed right after a incredibly uh, climactic honor duel that he had that she cheated on, and that's what made everything go wrong. And, and that happened before uh, some other really massive and, and sort of painful decisions they made. And I just feel like every time we play the game, it just cuts to the bone. Like our characters' beliefs are constantly being a question and we constantly have to evaluate like how much do we believe in this and and the game drives towards that because your characters have beliefs and you're rewarded for pursuing them and the gm is essentially instructed to make pursuing those brutal and ugly and painful and so you know our gm does a very good job of that but frankly it's not that hard to do uh, because you look at the gm and you go well what's the worst possible way that that this 
this this uh, challenge that you've presented could could go, and you throw that at them, and you say, "Well, you you want to you want to kill the duke? Great. Except for uh, you're in love with the duke's wife, and she prays that you that you uh, you have mercy on him. So, what's more important, killing the duke or uh, the woman you love? You know, it, it's just you just you constantly ask these difficult questions, and uh, so yeah, it's it's like Apocalypse World. It just generates interesting consequences that all have to do with what you've done. So the, the, the question isn't like, how do we kill the dragon? The question is, how do I deal with the horrible situation that I've created? Right. So thinking about some of the things you've said there and, and some of the other uh, ideas I've been tossing around in my head, if you were to put a percent on the importance of players, GM and system, how would you rate it? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, because I've seen strong games come out of, I've seen good games come out of situations where any one of those three were strong and the other two were weak. Like I've seen otherwise sort of floppish games that worked really well because we just had players that were just really into it and they, they sort of ran with it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen sort of lackluster games with great GMs that soared anyways. And and I've seen systems like Apocalypse World and Burning Wheel that will push ahead and create awesome scenarios, even when perhaps the players, the GMs are not that inspired. So that's, that's very difficult for me to answer. Um, I, I think I've got to stick to my system matters roots though, and say that system is your weakest link. System is where you can have a great GM and you can have great players but your system is going to restrict the level that you can get to. It's it's going to put a cap on the experience of your game because with a system that does not adequately handle the type of play you want to do, the the, the GM and the players will be handicapped. Right. Um, so I'm going to say 40-30-30. Uh, you know, I really can't give it a strong – that adds up to 100, right? Yeah. <laughs> I really can't give it a – I can't say that anyone is, is, is so uh, much more important than the other, but I'm going to give system the highest weight in that. All right. So going to the other side of uh, your role-playing experiences, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily have to be one that you think is badly written or somebody that you've got an extra grind against or anything like that. It's just uh, perhaps even a game that's just wronged you in some random way. <laughs> A game that I've been hurt by. Yes. Um, you know that 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 is a that is a difficult question to answer because I, I as being sort of a pro gamer, I loathe to um, I, I loathe to to insult any game. Um, How about I'll I'll give you my one because I haven't asked okay. this question on any of the other ones to give you perhaps an easy out. But um, the the supplemental game that I would cause to cease to exist would be Oriental Adventures for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons first edition. I'm, I'm um, very familiar. I I just for whatever reason it just irritated me to no end that these uh, characters w- that had martial arts were suddenly so much better than your uh, regular character. Or at least that's the way that that it was couched. So I didn't really. That was sort of around the time of the Karate Kid, and when martial arts was big, and every kid and their uh, and their brother was in judo or taekwondo or karate, and and so they brought that out and a smart business move. But that came out, and people wanted to play it, and I just I just couldn't do it. I, I just the whole idea 
um, of playing martial arts-based people as opposed to really good, solid sorcerers and uh, knights and things like that. I just I just couldn't do it. And if I could wave my magic wand and get those years back to play regular Dungeons & Dragons, I, I would. But, yeah, so that, that's my one. So I see. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to take you up on your offer then, and I'm going to follow suit. And I'm going to say that um, the, the splat books uh, for, for Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 um, I can't name any particular one, and that's just simply because I don't know them that well. Um, but the Splat books that gave new character options had a continual power creep, um, and they they followed they started for a while following the model of Magic the Gathering, which was that to stay sort of competitive, if you will, you had to keep buying these books. Mm so that you could keep having character options that were more and more powerful. And I, I do think that the designers were cognizant of this, and they would try to introduce suboptimal or at least even keel options, but there was always, in every book, one or two really just outstandingly powerful options. And so if you were uh, someone who would buy every single book and you were willing to combine all the most powerful options from every book, you could create characters that were vastly more powerful than someone who was playing out of even say the core books and maybe one or two supplements like uh, not even to knock all of them individually but collectively i think the spot books caused a power creep that uh frankly made it unfun for me to play in a game where i felt that i needed to optimize my character to a disgusting level to feel like i mattered in the game right uh, i played a I think we were 12th or 13th level when we started. That was that was the, the starting level for characters, and I and so I just made this made a, in 3.5. I made a character that was like a bard fighter duelist that seemed like a neat a neat idea, and I picked some cool feats, and I was pretty happy with it. And then I saw just how ridiculously outclassed I was by people that really knew how to game the system, and and it just eventually it just became sort of a joke for me. Like I didn't even try. We'd get into fights and I'd be like, I'm just going to dork around because the amount of, that I can impact the game is just insignificant compared to everyone else. And so up what you were saying before about the system being important because it sounds like there was, if you to play the type of character that you wanted to play, no matter how good a player you were or how good the GM was, there's going to be no room for you to play that character because you're, the system doesn't support or doesn't allow you to be that and be effective. Right. And, and that was, yeah. So I, I had a very, I wouldn't say it was horrible cause I still had some fun with the guys, but I had a very, uh, substandard game experience with that. Um, just because of all those you know, spot books. And, um, so yes, that's where I draw the line is power <laughs> creeping supplements. Yeah. So if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? Um, I'd never want to make that choice, but if I had to, I'd say GM. And that is because there are many times when I can only create a particular scenario and only a particular situation that I really want to play out by GMing it. You know, there, there are times when I say, man, I want this to happen. And the only way that's going to happen is if I do it. Right. So, um, the, the, for instance, the, the apocalypse world hacks that I've written, uh, apocalypse galactica and dead world. Um, I, I love them. I've put collectively probably 200 hours of work into them. And, you know, I would never do that as a player because there'd be no way that as a player I could say, I'm going to make all this work to, to hack a system and then hand it to a GM and say, will you run this for me? Right. Um, so I, I love playing, but there are just too many 
the things that excite me about going to a con where I get bring tons of props to a game and I even dress up in costume and I just throw hours and hours and hours into a game is when I'm running, um, not when I'm playing. So, yeah. Right. So you mentioned the two uh, sort of um, hacks that you had written for that Dead World. And what was the other one? Uh, Dead World and Apocalypse Galactica. So they're they... both on my uh, SeanNintner.com. SeanNintner.com. Okay, I'll, yep. I'll put that in the show notes as well. So if you're into, um, sound, that sounds like your sort of cup of tea, then check out SeanNintner.com for those uh, for those supplements. Or sorry, those hacks. Um, what is the perfect number to role play? Four. One GM, three players. Yeah, that's exactly my answer too. Yeah, one. That's yeah. that. They're having those three people makes the uh, just yeah. makes that dynamic. It gives you the opportunity to you know to flesh out your character to have two opposing views, to have two dissent, two views, and one dissenting view. I just everything about four is, is perfect mm-hmm. for for me. Four. And then when you have GMless games like Fiasco, then four still four, four players in a GMless game also fits for me just perfectly um, as well. So I. Um, like Durance, which is in playtest right now, um, Fiasco, 20 minutes um, in the future. Uh, there's plenty of others I'm not thinking of, but I also feel like that's um, a situation where four is perfect. Uh, I will play. I certainly will play with more, but that's that's my that's my happy spot. Um, five is also fine, but it's not. You know, one GM, four players is often my convention experience because that's right. what at cons usually. Games want at least four players for just to get, you know, uh, butts in seats, right. um, so that they can, you know, have enough room for everybody. But, but in my perfect scenario, it's four four people. Yeah, in a con game, it's always a risk. To, okay, for my for Victoria, because the game that you you and Karen and Keely, now actually all of you that played in that one game, uh, three is is the ideal number for a con game too, but you run the risk if you only have space for three players. If one person doesn't show up, then you're down to down to two, which in some games, uh, I mentioned a game that I, I ran, sort of a Project Twilight buddy cop type game. It works really well, but for most games, you get down to two and then it becomes a very, it's, it sort of speeds the game up. Uh, almost exponentially, like a game that would take four hours, only take two hours with with two people because there is no people aren't going in different directions. So, you, have you had experience with that? Like you've put down your ideal number and then found you've only got two. Well, um, no, because typically, again, for a con, I've had to at least do four, and I've been pretty lucky in that most of my game ideas have. Um, you know, most of my game ideas I steal from other sources, so I, I see something like. Um, I ran a, a Dune hack of Smallville called Duneville, and uh, you know, again, the, the other Apocalypse World hacks I've run, and I tend to pick settings or situations that I that are pretty hot that people are really excited about. Without before I've even put any effort into it, I already know that people are going to be really excited. So I, right. usually, my games are filled, um, and so that that's never been an issue. But I, I have found that in in gaming with just two players, when I have been in that situation um, where I've been a player. And there's just been one other player, or when I was just running for a couple of friends, and it was just two people. That sometimes people feel a little uncomfortable that they're kind of in the spotlight too often. They yes. they don't really have any room to breathe because they're like, well, yeah. as soon as that player does something, that's back to me again. And I, yeah. and I, I kind of, and if that player doesn't give them anything interesting to spin off of, they're like, well, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I hadn't considered. Versus that. if there's at least two there, they can. There, there's always sort of. I'm moving my hands around a lot right now, which is great podcasting. But um, <laughs> there's always sort of. 
there's this cycle of action happening. And so it's very easy to figure out like, oh, by the time two of the people have done something, surely one of the things they did is interesting to me and I can jump in on that and keep yeah. uh, spinning that plot thread. Yeah, I hadn't considered that, but you're, you're absolutely right. Um, going back to what you'd said previously about the uh, Dune game, Duneville, and also something you mentioned earlier in the in the podcast about getting people involved. Most of the games that I write for cons, Victoria aside, um, are based on the idea of Reservoir Dogs, where all of the characters have some reason to hate the other characters, and but before they get to that the sort of point in the game where they can resolve those and it becomes sort of player versus player, I throw something in where they have to unify to, to overcome it, and then the last sort of third of the game plays out where these various subplots come into play, and, and I write it like that so that it taps into people's... Most people will try to win, if they possibly can in a con game, like they want to mm-hmm. have their character to be the one that's, I mean, I know that's true for me. Right about here is where Sean and I encountered a few technical difficulties. So in the interest of maintaining continuity with what will follow, uh, I was just in the process of describing how generally people will try to win in a con game. Now, by winning, I mean that they are given, or that is their character is given some kind of a goal that they are trying to achieve before the end of the game. And so when I'm given a character... Uh, that's something that I dedicate time to doing. Now, I don't do it to the exclusion of trying to have fun with the character, but part of trying to fulfill that goal is that the con game writer, the person who's in charge of the game, if I, I assume that they're somewhat like me and that if I'm going to give the players some sort of a goal, then that goal is probably written with the intention of bringing the characters into conflict. So one character will have a goal, another character will have a different goal. And so once this sort of shared threat has been neutralized, then that's when the players will begin to operate in such a way to fulfill those goals. And by operating to fulfill those goals, the players, or that is the characters, will themselves come into conflict, and that helps to increase the investment of the players in the game. The original recording now continues with Sean's response to my question about his experience of the amount of character development versus plot development in con games. My experience with uh, what I'd consider sort of the division between plot and character development is that while I find character development far more satisfying because I think the most interesting play happens between the PCs and not between the PCs and the NPCs or between the PCs and the monsters that they face. I think that's really where the, like the really like people will, will play the hardest when they're playing against each other. And by hardest, I mean like they'll, they'll dig into their beliefs. They'll, they'll fight what they care about. They'll, they'll really challenge each other. Um, so while I find that character development is more satisfying to me than plot, Yes. If there's no plot, it's like, what's the point? Yes. You know, why does it, why are we arguing? Because nothing really matters. Yes. You know, why does it, why are we arguing? Because nothing really matters. Yeah. And, and also some players don't respond very well to that. They want an external threat. They want the GM to give them their challenges. They don't want to look to the other players for the challenges. Right. So I think your format, which, which sounds very similar to mine, which is to put sort of the players in a pressure cooker where everything is wrong and they're 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 inherently mm. have issues with each other but the external stimulus is so powerful that they can never be they can never ignore it and yes. if they choose to really stick to their guns and fight each other they're most likely going to be sacrificing 
they're most likely to be losing to whatever external threat is present. That's right. Yeah, they um, ran together initially. Another good way of find to ramp up that uh, into sort of character drama is to pass notes that say basically nothing, but anybody starts seeing secret notes being passed between the GM and character immediately gets on their guard. So I, I shamelessly do that as well to you know really get people. Oh. Oh my goodness, Daniel, this podcast is going to double in length now because I am emphatically opposed to secrets at the table. Really? I yeah. think I have a high level of trust in my players, even if I don't know them at cons, I will tell them. I'm like, everything we say at this table will be said across the board, wow. um, and I will absolutely expect you to have your character know as much as would be cool for the story. So if we say something that is this awesome secret and it would really just pull like blow, take all the air out of it if you just knew it then you don't know it right. but if it would be really cool if you found out about it or suspected it or thought it but got it wrong then that's what happens right. and i tend to be pretty proactive as a gm when my players start when they start playing games with secrets where one of them is, is kind of killing another one's fun by like taking their secret and saying they know and i'm like no 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 no, that's not cool. This person has a secret. That secret's awesome. So you should threaten yeah. it. You should rub up against it. You should get close to it. But don't say you know it because then that takes all the steam out of it. Oh, let's yeah, let's sure. have it come revealed in play. Sure, I think maybe so, you're talking about a different type of uh, type of note than what you're than what you're talking about. The sort of notes that yeah. I, I I pass are things that their character perhaps sees but that another character doesn't see. So, for mm -hmm. example, if the characters are like one's investigating somewhere and one's investigating somewhere else, and then I pass a note, or for example, um, in one of the games that I played, uh, that I ran, uh, one of the characters' goals was to release a virus so that all of the other characters would get infected by it and they'd have their only antidote and so therefore they'd have a have a bargaining chip. That sort of thing, like when the character's going to let this go. I mean, I, I got around it in some situations because I gave them a, a little vial full of a really strong, cheap perfume. So they'd pull the, mm. um, the mm. lid off and then the, the, the players would say, oh, what's that smell? Like there's all of a sudden I can smell this perfume and stuff like that. Nobody would, would own up to it. But then later on when when... The, the player uh, or the character revealed that all these people had been infected with this with this virus. He can then point his finger back to the fact that the um, point his finger back to the fact that you know you sm smell remember smelling that thing that was the that was the the virus. So like a note that, that was might, the virus. Yeah. yeah. So the note that they might pass to me is you know like. Uh, am I, you know, is it is is now like I'm going to release the virus now or something like that. So by giving mm -hmm. them a, an, a, um, something to act on within their character description um, that they would not want the other players to know, that's the sort of thing. I don't mean uh, you know this about that person or you know that about that person. I never crossed that line so that nobody's got an advantage yeah. on somebody else. But to help create... No, I... I Still no? I... Uh... I, I, I give you great compliments for the prop. I think a, a vial of strong perfume is fantastic. But I still am on a philosophical divide from you with regards to the vial because I'd much rather the table all know that that's the bloody traitor that's infecting us all. And the players uh, – the, the reason why I'm so emphatic about this is that I think that responsible players – and unfortunately you can't always guarantee that's what no, you're going to get. Exactly but right. I think that responsible players – 
will generate more tension by knowing about what's happening. They'll walk into it. They'll be like, they'll talk about their character acting, feeling sick. They'll, they'll, they'll suddenly make their character more, more compassionate to the player that's, that, that's poisoning them. Like they'll say, Oh, I, I'm so glad we have you here because only somebody with your medical knowledge, you know, could, could keep us alive through this, you know, through this injury. Like, what would I do if I didn't have you when they know that that person is the one poisoning them? You know, they'll, mm. they create this, like, they, the, I think responsible players will, will make that, that action dig really deep into the, the psyche of, of the player who's doing it and of the, and of, of and of their characters as well, of, or of the character that's doing it and of their characters as well, that they form sort of bonds and connections around those secrets that the players know, but the characters don't. And the players um, circle those so that when it's revealed, it's not like this aha, which I agree can have a, a, a cool effect. Like people are like, Oh, that's what it was. Instead. It's one of those, like, there's a buildup to it. where like, there's, it, there's tension growing and growing and growing around it to when it finally is revealed. And someone says, and you say, like, I think this is the time for your character to figure out that he's the one poisoning you. Or one of the players is like, I want to now roll to find out that you're the one poisoning me. And right. and it, when it does finally come out, it is, um, it, it, it becomes such a more personal act than it was when it was just like, I, I knew this thing and you didn't. Um, right. But it's a risk because yes. if you have a player who's just like, if you have a player who is playing very protectively and they're like, oh, no, um, I run out of the room as soon as I smell it or I have a gas mask or I have a whatever and they try to prevent themselves from being poisoned, then they've just sort of defeated yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. You know? I think that uh... – So it's, uh, it, it's a risk, but yes. uh, it's, it's one I tend to – it's one I tend to take. Like, you, take that, you take that in the, even in a con setting with unknown, unknown players. Oh yes, yeah, indeed. Um, uh, because again, I, I don't really have any problem being very proactive as a GM, saying, "Nope, that's lame. Right. Don't do that." Okay. You know, like like if the player says, "I put on my gas mask," I'm like, "Dude, no, totally. Like, Just you smell the strange thing." <laughs> right, right, right. You know. Um, and do you have you know, the people uh, in the game, uh, not the players, but the characters in the game, uh, knowing each other, or all, all strangers? Because my, the games, all of the, the games that I run or, that are along those lines, the characters are all strangers to one another, just like they would be in reality, I, I, like the the people at the at the table, perhaps. Uh, it, it really varies from game to game. Right. Um, my Duneville game, for instance, I had I was actually having them play all canon characters. Um, I, they were playing. Uh, I took a twist from from um, the book where where uh, Paul died, and and everyone was kind of like, well, "What do we do?" Because Paul's dead, right. and they were you know they're playing Jessica, Paul's mother, and Stilgar, his weapons master, and and Jamis, the guy who killed him. So there was immediate tension created because one guy's like, "I killed your son," hmm. but then the cultural belief was that that meant he had power over them, not the other way around. Hmm. So. Uh, the characters were all like super invested in each other, right. but that was using Smallville, which is a game all about characters that are invested in each other. So it's it's necessary that they know each other and care yes. about one another. Sure. Um, other other games, um, I've played that looser, but I'm I'm very committed to the characters having a strong social bond. Uh, often I do it by like. You all have the same job. You all have the same orders. You all have something that is that you that that not doing that anymore means leaving the game. Oh. Like you know, you're all soldiers and you're stuck together 
and you might hate one another, but if you shoot the other person, that is insubordinate. That's not insubordination. That's right. mutiny. That's, you know, that's, that is not at all acceptable. And if you should do it, if you decide to do it anyway, and you want to play the game of being a mutineer, then that's cool. But you know, you've crossed that like really huge line. Right. Um, and so I generally try to give the characters a very strong connection, whether it be personal or impersonal. Right. I think we're probably opposite ends of the opposite ends of the con game, at least in terms of uh, the way that you write the characters there, and that perhaps goes along better with the uh, with the choices we make in terms of um, what is and isn't uh, general knowledge at the table. But my next question is: um, Should males play females? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I I play female characters. Eh, I wouldn't say as often, but probably forty percent of the time. Um, I personally feel like gender shouldn't be an issue in gaming. I don't like the term girl gamer. Um, right. I think I think women who game are just gamers. They're just gamers. Because girl gamer insinuates that, that, that the normative gamer is a guy. Yes. Like to say that I'm a gamer and then a woman who games is a girl gamer means that the normal gamer isn't a girl, and and right. I don't I don't think gender should end. I mean, certainly I think playing with gender in game, you know, romance or or sexism, if that's appropriate to the game itself. Sure, cool. Um, or even gender issues, you know. Yeah. Uh, I've played I've played transgender characters, uh, not often, but I've done it. Um, and uh, but I try to be as agnostic as I can to gender. Um, so yeah. if I'm if I'm running a game, half the characters will be male, half will be female, or they won't have a gender specified. If I can be flexible enough with the pre-gen that I don't need to specify the gender, yeah. or sometimes I'll have a picture, I'll have two pictures for the character, and you can choose. And one will be female, one will be male, so that the player can pick independent of the character. Um, sometimes it's really important, like again, if we're playing canon characters, that there be, you know, they they have to be that 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 character. Jessica was Paul's mom, so Jessica right. is female because right. you know it's Paul's mom. Right. Uh, Paul's dad is dead in this story, so it's he's not relevant. He's not he's not applicable. But um, but I I I'd like personally, and I mean, this is kind of just you know, my own, um, uh, optimism or, you know, utopia, I guess, is that gender would just never be relevant. Like any, any gender, you know, man, ma male or female could play a game and with no sort of bias and that they could play either gender with no sort of bias. I realize that that's possibly unrealistic, but that's, that's sort of my goal. Right. And I, th and the reason that I bring that question up is, uh, because do you feel that, um, to play it realistically, if you like, do males understand enough about females? Like, uh, if you were, say, just starting out in gaming and you were a, a say, a felt like a teenage boy, say, say specifically, because the reason sure. that I bring, that I asked this question was because one of the games, the first longish games that I played was uh, was Dragonlance, and uh, I mm -hmm. played the, I played the Gold Moon character. You know, f f uh, as a as a guy playing a girl and then fending off the guy character's advances on the on the girl character, it yeah. made me feel uncomfortable in the same way that perhaps a regular girl would feel uncomfortable to uh, advances from a from a guy quite outside of quite outside of role playing. So uh, I guess from my that question comes from my my own somewhat uncomfortable experience, not of being uncomfortable playing a girl, but being made uncomfortable playing a girl playing with guys, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, 
I, I do see what I do see what you're saying, and I, and I certainly am not ignorant enough to say like I, I don't I don't see that as, as an issue. Um, I, I think a lot of it comes down to maturity. Uh, oh, yeah, frankly, absolutely. if you're a teenage boy, if you're a teenage boy, uh, you know, like sex is on your mind all the time, and it's pretty hard to filter that out. Uh, it, it might be that that doesn't change as we age, but I think we get better at at, uh, <laughs> at being civilized about yeah. it. We get better at being, you know, um, and so and so I think. The scenario of a, a male player playing a female character, and then kind of dealing with, as you said, like these sort of unwanted advances, uh, while that may mirror uh, women's experiences in in real life to some degree or another. I mean, I, I can't really say whether to what degree it does, hmm. um, and 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 that is it, that is in and of itself a real plight. I mean, certainly women get picked up on when they don't want to be yeah. um, and and guys do as well but i, I think that, that that there's some pressure there um of course um you know i i would ask i would ask at the table like what's this story about like yeah. is this a story about uh gender issues and is this a story about like my sort of character's kind of like growth through this unwanted attention and like how I respond to it, or are you guys just being jerk offs? Like, like, is that what the game is about? Or are you guys just kind of being dumb teenage boys and like, you're getting your kicks off of talking about my character in a lewd way, you know? Um, Because if it's the former, then sure, let's play that up. You know, let's, let's, play up a character but also i would say like if it's the former and that's something you're into doing like if that's something you feel comfortable with but if you as the player are like i just want to play this female character i don't really want to deal with romance i don't really want to deal with these advances like knock it off yeah but i think it's a completely legitimate i'm sorry are you are you then selling your character short I, are, are you selling a character short if you don't know about sword fighting when you're playing a swashbuckler or you don't know about dragon anatomy when you're playing a sorcerer? Like, like we make up stuff all the time in games. Like, we don't know a ton of this stuff. We don't, I don't know anything about alchemy or, or, or anything else. I, I go off of books I've read, movies I've seen, and I can guarantee I've seen more women than I've seen alchemists. Well, and I have no... From a perspective of... Um, if you're going to play a female character in a quasi, and, and we'll go back to the Dragonlance for now, a quasi medieval um, sort of setting, then is dealing with unwanted advances from male people in the game part of being a female person in the game? Uh, I, I, I think there's two sort of two ways to ask that or to, to address that one is setting expectations early on in the game even if you forgot to do it before the game starts i think it's huge to do that as soon as it comes up like hey guys i do do we want this in the game i, I don't i don't really want this let's talk about it and have any discussion about whether or not that's something appropriate to the game the second one is that setting is independent of genre Dragonlance is a fantasy setting george r, r. martin is a fantasy setting but uh Dragonlance is uh you know epic fantasy and 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 Martin is is butchery and depravity. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to call his genre, but it's all full of brutality and rape, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, is Martin doing fantasy wrong, or is or is Margaret Weiss doing fantasy wrong? No, they're just sort of telling different genres within right. the same so setting. You, if you're a so female I, and I, George R. R. Martin, you should expect that to uh, have that as part of your uh, character. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you're playing a very hardcore song of ice and fire game and that's what people are you know really invested in mm. then 
then then you ha- then then at the very least you have to ask those questions of um so is like rape going to happen in our game yeah. because it happens all the time in the books and how do we feel about that um personally i don't know that i would really want to play that game i don't know that i want to play out games of rape uh no. I, no. my general inclination would be to say no i don't no, but uh, but but i think it's i think it's something you should discuss because Maybe it's the kind of thing where you say, yeah, it happens, but we're just going to do it off scene. Like, yeah. yep, that's an unfortunate horribleness of this game, but we're going to stick to the setting. We're going to stick to the brutality. We're going to keep this kind of depravity yeah. in the setting. And, but we're, gonna, we're just going to cut the scene. We're going to say, okay, we know what happens next. Cut next. Yeah. And now we know this character hates this other one because of the horrible atrocities they committed against her right. or him even. Um, but... Uh, but we don't actually have to put that on, on screen. And uh, I, I would personally reference um, Ron Edwards' Sorcerer, where he talks about lines and veils. I think that discussions of lines and veils are important. Lines are saying what's going to be in this game and what's not going to be in this game, and veils are saying what are we going to see on screen and what aren't we going to see. Right. So you might say, well, sex will be in this game. That's a lie. We've said that sex is in the game, but you might have a veil that says, but we'll never actually see it. We're not going to describe a sex scene, right. whether it's... Uh, whether it's consensual or not, you know, right. we're, 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 uh, we're, we're going to say, okay, you kiss, you look deep, deep into her eyes and we fade to black right. and, you know, and you wake up in the morning with your clothes spread all over the floor yeah. and, you know, and, an and, and, and I think that that's, um, sometimes if you're in a new group, having those discussions early on is very important. Sometimes the genre a- answers it for you. If you're playing a pulpy game of like 1940s pulp heroes, then you 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 don't even have license in that game to swear, let much less do you know acts acts of depravity because that's right. not what a pulp hero would do. They're right. they're men and women of adventure and action, and they don't do those kind of things. Right. Um, but when you get into like a darker, grittier game, I think it's really important to have that discussion early on. Right. So are there some like hard lines then that you will not cross as in terms of what? can and can't be part of a, an explicit part of a role-playing game. I don't mean explicit in terms of R18. I mean explicit as in you're not going to pull a veil over it. Uh, I don't... I, I used to have some. I have found that those have have, have faded for me. So I used to... Having two children myself, um, I used to... Uh, for When they were first born, I would not allow violence against children in my games. And I didn't care if I was a player or a GM. I just said, nope, I'm not going to play in this game. Mm -hmm. Like, if if it wasn't respected by the game, I would leave the game. Usually it wasn't. That was never a problem because I could just say, guys, look, I'm not cool with violence against children. I I don't want to see it. I don't want it to be in the game. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's not do that. And uh, and that was just, you know, sort of my fatherly instinct saying, no, I can't stomach that. Right. my children are now nine and six. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love them to death, but I no longer feel that sort of hypersensitivity around children. And right. so I recently played, for instance, a horror game right. where a, a boy who was actually my daughter's age was having a bad dream. It wasn't actually something that was happening in the game, but he was having a dream of this, of this horrible thing happening. Right. Um, and I kind of was checking in with myself, like, am I cool with this? Am I, am I okay? And I mm-hmm. found that I was like, well, it's a dream. It's not something, you know, the GM was very explicit that he wasn't going to actually do anything on, on screen. We sort of saw the silhouette of the action. And then, of course, he woke up, um, and, and I found I was okay with it. So uh, 
So no, but I do really want people to to be mature and to take things seriously. Yeah. Like if, if you're gonna have like atrocities in your game, have those atrocities be meaningful. Have those be yeah. things like like in the in the Burning Wheel game I was talking about, I was gonna cut out my sister's tongue. Mm -hmm. Like that was not something I was gonna do lightly. But she had ruined me. She had taken this noble knight and just destroyed him. She violated an honor duel. She had just lied to him over and over. She had betrayed him so many times. He finally felt that uh, I have to be with this person. I've been I've been assigned by my lord to be with this woman. I cannot leave her behind, but I cannot suffer her lies another another day. The only way I can suffer from lying is by cutting out her tongue. Oh, and I it's it's atrocious. But it was not something I was gonna do lightly. I certainly wasn't gonna make any levity of it. it no, was, no, but it's it was context, really right? yeah, yeah. It was it was many games into the session and yeah. and uh many games into the and into the campaign and, and also it was done with the consent of the other player. Sure. I told her in advance, I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. I'm mm -hmm. thinking that this is what I want. Are you okay with that? Oh, yeah. And she was like, oh, yeah, definitely. Right. That's awesome. Right. Bring it. So so, uh, so I, th I think when you get into those delicate subjects, you really need to make sure everybody's on board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're all okay. Everybody needs to have fun. If everybody, what's the, how's it going? If everybody's having fun, then everybody's winning. Is that the, the cheesy role-playing line? Is it? Yeah, I like that. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not familiar. I like that. That sounds good. <laughs> so, having fun. Um, do you, um, and this is probably the thorniest of uh, questions, do you or should GMs fudge roles? Huh. Um, I'd like to say that it should never be necessary. Um, and personally, I make all my dash roles in public. So I, I prevent myself from doing it by keeping all my roles public, by like rolling in front of everybody. I never play with the GM screen. Or if I do, my GM screen is sort of off to the side as like a reference because sometimes they have like useful charts and stuff mm. on them but that was my it's never in front of dragons was making my own dungeon master screen i used to wait for a box of cereal to be finished then quickly cut it all out and my mum used to bring home photocopies nice. put together the perfect dungeon master's screen and then uh it would get floppy and i'd have to make another one but yeah sorry to interrupt you yeah no no problem at all uh as a, as a slight tangent there's a company that that makes a four panel screen that has little sliding panels so you can slide a nice. sheet of paper on each side nice. so you can have up to eight pages oh. uh, four on each <laughs> side and so you can customize your gm screen with different charts yeah. anyway uh notably burning wheel has an eight page gm screen that you can print out so nice. worked out perfectly for me okay. uh, so so yeah so i don't let myself do it it's like one of those things where i'm afraid that i would and so i i don't want to take the chance and so i just put all the the dice i put all the rolls in front of people um but uh, the the implicit thing in not needing to fudge rolls or not allowing to fudge rolls is that uh is setting stakes in advance and people knowing what they're getting into before the dice at the table yes. so when someone says like i go and i punch the dragon in the face mm -hmm. i'm like um first off what do you want out of that like are you trying to hurt the dragon or are you trying to intimidate the dragon or are you just trying to get his attention yeah and they say, oh, I just want to get his attention. I want him to listen to me because he's been lording on, and I want him to know that, like, I'm not just this pathetic mortal. I, I, have, I have real stones. I want him to listen to me. And I'm like, okay, well, you want your intent of wanting to listen to you, you know, that shouldn't be that dangerous. Like, right. like if you fail this role to punch him in the face be, with the intent not of harming him but the intent of, you know, getting his attention, then, well, you know, then he's going to um, – He's going to dismiss you as a pathetic, you know, he's going to toss you aside or dismiss you as a pet, pathetic, uh, 
pathetic uh, mortal, or maybe you're going to make an enemy of one of his followers. You know, the dragon is a god to these people, and so you've just insulted their god, and now someone's plotting to kill you because you've you, you've offended his his lord. Right. But uh, but I'm not going to say if you fail this roll, the dragon beats fire on you and you're dead, because right. I don't feel that that's sort of commiserate with what they want. Like that doesn't right. seem legitimate to me. No. But if they say, you know, I want to go in there and stab the dragon in the eye and kill him, and be like, well, okay. I think that's really tough to do, and I think, you know, I don't think killing characters is ever an interesting option, but I do totally think, like, I think he burns your, you know, your arm off, or I think uh, he he captures you and throws you into his prison, or I think these other sort of, like, atrocious things happening to you are totally fair game, and I say, so if you make that role, you do that. If you fail that role... Yeah. Uh, or if I win, if we're playing kind of versus, you know, roll whoever gets highest, yes. then this is what's going to happen. And as long as you're like cool with that, then there's no reason for me to fudge the dice rolls because hopefully I've created a failure condition that is as interesting as a success condition. Yeah. Like it's failed, but it's fail moving forward. Like, whoa, that was something cool. Now my character like hates this dragon because he maimed him and like right. he's going to get vengeance, whatever. Um, so I think if you set stakes in advance, there's there's not really any need to. Um, if you're playing kind of a more traditional game that deals with like a lot of dice rolls at a time and you sort of feel like, like this die roll really needs to succeed because if it doesn't, then the game's going to stop and it's going to like be boring and it's going to slow things down. My, my first kind of hippie indie instinct would be say, don't roll on it then. Like, just do it. Just like the guy's like, I go and knock the mook out. And I'm like, um, I don't really care about this mook guarding the door. Like, in fact, I think it's cool for you to tell me how awesome you are when you knock the mook out. So, yeah, describe how awesome it is when you knock the mook out. Like, yeah. you haymaker him. I don't care. You know what? Tell me the cool thing you do, and then, and then, um, and then, uh, and then we'll move on. Or I might say, yeah, roll the dice. If you succeed, you knock the mook out. If you fail, you knock the mook out. But there's a camera watching you, and the bad right. guy knows you're there. You know, like, but but like, it shouldn't be a question of whether you knock the mook out because you're like this badass pulp hero. You yeah, know, of course exactly. you can knock out a mook. Yeah, I think, like you say, the conditions ahead, setting the conditions ahead of time really negates the necessity to to fudge rolls. But the reason I've got that particular question is that one of the first pieces of feedback I got, I got about my game was in one section, um, I, I say, as a as a GM, you you should fudge rolls, but I made it for a new GM, somebody who's just new to gaming, because most people that come to gaming um, and they have uh, perhaps a background in doing board games, but most people have played Snakes and Ladders or something like that, when it comes to rolling the dice, mm-hmm. what you roll is it. That's it, and there's no there's no negotiation. And mm-hmm. when it comes to transferring that idea, if you are, say, in the position of somebody, and this was specifically who was aimed at really, is somebody who has to pick up the Dungeon Master's guy because him and two friends or her and two friends got a hold of a role-playing game. Somebody has to be the game master, but nobody's ever seen it happen before. And I wanted to... Sure. I mean, And I guess that's my own bias is that I'm much more interested in, in story than I am in, in rolling dice and I felt yeah. that was the best way to convey the idea that really the dice are important because they throw up interesting things such as the outcomes that you described. Sure. For somebody that's new to gaming um, it's hard to convey that idea of that the, 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 there aren't hard and fast rules the only rule is the mm-hmm. one that I said before like everybody needs to be needs to be having fun but I think you put it perfectly which is you need to set up the conditions of success and failure ahead of time so you're never in a situation where you have to uh fudge those roles so i think that you uh, rolled a critical success on your dodge on that one uh in terms of answering that question <laughs> directly but um well thank you as far as, the, as that applies to your system 
Uh, obviously, I mean, you have Victoria published right now, but my thoughts on that would be, you know, my uh, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And I, and and I didn't write the system and and labor over it to, to to so I don't I don't necessarily have the the authority here to to give uh, advice on it. Um, but but in terms of advice to a GM, um, I would try to say uh, rather than saying you know uh, fudge rolls is necessary. Um, I would say make sure that roles have interesting consequences, oh, yeah, uh, and the, the, the consequences will still be fun, you know, regardless of success or failure. Um, don't roll on things where it's a binary. Like my 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 least favorite kind of role is a is a role where there's a null result possible. Yes. Like it's not like you either hit or you uh, you either like see the guy sneaking up on you or you don't. Yes. Like I want to say you either see the guy sneaking up on you or he knocks you out. Yes. Like that, you don't see him is just a boring result. Yes. You you know, and you catching him before he catches you is also is, is neat, and him catching you is neat. But yes. but the just like oh nothing happens. Yes. Uh, you know, okay. um, and yeah. similarly, you know, you, you you don't want rules where it's like oh this thing happened now all the fun has been leached out of the game. Yes. Like there shouldn't be there shouldn't be options on the table if if there's a way to roll dice that equal no fun, then, yes. then that should be changed. Absolutely. That, that right. was part of the context too. You know, I gave, I think the example I use is with, a, with an alligator. You know, I mentioned that there's a, an alligator in the game and, and if you have um, people that aren't familiar, A, with um, alligators, or B, with somebody who has no idea of the relative strength of their character to an alligator and they go in there to, to, to fight the alligator... Then you can have you can make that role. You don't have to fudge it. And if they're unsuccessful at wrestling this alligator like they've seen in those those cheesy old films, then then one consequence is that uh, they successfully wrestle the alligator. The second consequence is that the alligator grabs a hold of you and, and twists you around, but then throws you up onto the riverbank. So you know that's a that's a, the example that you gave before with the dragon burning the guy's arm off. It's not quite as interesting in as much as it's unlikely somebody's going to form a. Uh, 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 sort of a revenge fantasy against an alligator, but it teaches them something. They might have a phobia of one, though, after. Oh, sure, sure. It teaches them <laughs> they, might be, they might be terrified, like, you know, uh, what's, what's the character from Peter Pan that's, um, um, see, what's the antagonist of Peter Pan that's, that's terrified of the, the crocodile that has his... Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I, don't remember, I was thinking along a completely opposite. I was thinking of Happy Gilmore and uh, Chubbs McKenzie, <laughs> or someone who gets his hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that too. Yeah, like I'll get you. You know. So, so yeah. So I, I had that all that all in there, but I wanted to impress upon the uh, sort of perhaps the novice GM the idea that ultimately, you know, story is important, and and I, and that's a much better way to put it. That there should be no null result um, from a from a dice roll. Um, so what would you say was, yeah. or at least for you, the best or the most inspiring film for role-playing? Like one that you went, oh, that's the best thing I've ever seen and I'm going to, and I'll include television here or even a book that just made you, okay, I'm going to write this and I'm going to write that and I'm going to play a game and it just all just worked out exactly the way that you, uh, that you wanted. i got to say uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, watched that show and was like, I want to play it. Mm. I want to be there. Right. right. Running game. And, I, and there is not a game to do it, so I'm going to make a game to do it. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm going to take my favorite game, and I'm going to slap it with my favorite setting, and uh, and I'm going to see if I can make that happen. So, uh, yeah, definitely uh, BSG. Yeah, um, it, it, I, I understand a lot of people didn't like it as it went further on. It got kind of muddled. But that game, that, that show, at least from the start, had a very strong um, 
very strong uh, sense of drama. Yeah, that I've I've never watched Battlestar Galactica. I've never watched any science fiction really, apart from Star Wars, because I watched the first Star Wars before the unfortunate incident with Traveller that I described to you before. But since then, I've never like I I, I couldn't, couldn't even do Starship Traveller, the um, the Finding Fantasy book. Basically, anything sort of space related now leaves me cold, and I think I'm mm. literally scarred for life by that bad experience with the Traveller. But Battlestar Galactica, everybody says that it's it's fabulous, and everybody said that Serenity was awesome as well. But I just I just, I've tried, mm. I've really tried, but but yeah, that's uh, scarred for life. So maybe uh, I I was really scarred by Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, when I first played it. I just didn't get the point. I was not at all interested in watching characters deteriorate into insanity or be killed by otherworldly creatures. I was at a point in my life where I wanted to play role playing games to play out power fantasies. Mm. I wanted to play knights with swords and armor. I wanted to play powerful sorcerers. I wanted to play people who did stuff rather than had stuff done to them. Right. You know, um, sort of iconic characters rather than dynamic characters. You know, right. Batman and and um, and, uh, uh, and and God, who's the character? Jack Bauer. Right. And, and, you know, Batman and, and, and Jack Bauer and John McClane mm. are all these, like, iconic characters that, like, affect the world around them mm. um, versus... Uh, dynamic characters, which are constantly sort of being torn up by what the world does to them, and um, and, and certainly all those characters, you know, Batman and and Jack Bear and John McClane, all have dynamic elements to them. That's what keeps them interesting: is that they do change, they do, they are affected. But you can kind of watch like read comic after comic after comic of Batman and be like, that's oh, the same guy. Like he's yes. not really changing all that no, much. Sure. Um, and that's what I wanted to play as, as a as a young adult was was characters that changed the world around them. I had power fantasies of being an awesome, powerful swordsman. And so playing a character that was like a normal dude who just went insane and like got killed seemed horrible. I was like, <laughs> why would I want to do this? This is, this is, and, and it took many years before I finally was like, I'll try Cthulhu game. Mm. And by that time, not only had my sensibilities changed mm. that I was more interested in playing dynamic characters, but also my, uh, the you know the maturity of my GM was much higher, and I played it, and I was like, "This is awesome!" Yeah. I don't know why I was so turned off to it. I had the same experience with uh, Deadlands, and that I had a really bad Deadlands game that I just hated. Mm-hmm. And I had friends that said, "No, it's a, it's an awesome system," and and um, I finally played in a really well done game and completely turned around on it. So. I still have hope for you, Daniel. I still think you might find the right sci-fi game, and it'll <laughs> it'll cure you of your uh, your your aversion to it. But you know, when when the time is right, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. When, I'm, when I'm emotionally prepared, I'm I'm at the sort of other end of the scale for, uh, on terms of the the characters. I always I always loved the the unwinnable struggle. I don't uh, I'm not a particularly fatalistic person, and, and perhaps that's why. But um, I always enjoyed that. You know that struggle that you couldn't win. That always that um, battle against um, incredible odds. So that those few times mm-hmm. that you were successful were were all the uh, all that much sweeter. So the guy going crazy and and Cthulhu was was and but just keeping him alive for as long as possible was or keeping him sane at least for as long as possible. I found tremendously satisfying. But but yeah, it's, I think that would you and this is. Um, Related, I suppose, but would you say that role playing was cathartic, at least for you? Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I, I told many times, I told people many times, uh, role playing is not therapy. Don't come to my game to like deal with your issues. Mm. Um, but that said, um, that said, I do think that there is a lot of 
a release that you can have in playing a character that is absolutely unlike playing a character that would do things that you would never do. I mean, frankly, like I would never leap from, you know, a Zeppelin onto a biplane uh, and, and, and throw the pilot out and, and, and see if I could, you know, pilot the plane uh, to safety. Would you um, throw a biplane onto a Zeppelin t- though? Oh, well, yeah, sure. Okay. So. Right. No problem. Stupid question. Yeah, of course. It's trivial. Um, but, uh, there's so many, and, and, I, and, I, and I would never kill a person. I mean, I, I guess I can't know that with certainty. I mean, we don't really never know, but like I've, I've never committed violence against a person. I've never been into a fight, um, uh, uh, physical education at least. Um, uh, I, I certainly understand that many people do, but uh, I'm not a pacifist per se. I've just never been in a situation where I've, you know, where I've needed to, you know, to resort to violence or anyone's ever been violent with me. Um, and I count myself very fortunate in that. And I know a lot of people can't, can't necessarily say the same thing. Um, but you know, I, mm. I, I can't imagine myself, um, uh, you know, attacking, assaulting somebody. And mm. yet the idea of it, like the idea of whipping a sword around and chopping up dude's head sounds cool. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to do sure. it, but it, you know, like, so I, I definitely think that like, we get to play out these things that we couldn't otherwise, even if those things are horribly awful things. Like I want to play my character suffering through, you know, his parents disgrace when he tells them that he's homosexual and like, mm. I'm not homosexual. I don't have, I've never lived through that, but maybe I want to play that out and see what that's like. His shame, his fears, you know, all these things like, and of course, just like playing another gender, just like playing, Somebody who has knowledge that I don't have, I never know whether I can actually play that authentically or not, but I can play it seriously. I can do my earnest best to invest in it as best mm. I think I can, and I can see what kind of like emotional turmoil that that pulls up for me because you know at the end everything's human issues anyway. Everything we're all human. We all right. you know uh, get what it's like to be sad or hurt, or, right. and and so you can play those those things up on a grander scale than you'd ever have in your life or just a different scale maybe not grander but just do you get different. that same sort of feeling about uh i mentioned this to uh karen and also to keely i think um that feeling when you say that you're a role player because i'm not sure if uh if you experienced this much uh growing up or were aware of it much growing up but the um the sort of idea that dungeons and dragons was tantamount to devil worship and also, it has not only that, but the connotations of it being, you know, socially maladjusted, you know, people with poor ideas of personal hygiene and, and those types of things are stereotypes that are associated with gamers. So I, I always feel a certain amount of trepidation, certainly not in the same league as somebody coming out to their parents, but a certain amount of, you know, fear and uh, and shame in saying that, you know, that I'm a, a role player. And I don't know whether that's to do with my own... Uh, background or whether it's to do more with um, the age that I am because of the things that were associated with it when I first got involved. Mm-hmm. I think most of my fears about admitting that I was a role player were largely my own hang-ups. I, I never think I was ever seriously – I don't think anyone ever seriously thought that I knew. I just seriously thought role-playing was satanic or you know dangerous or – you know like I, I don't think anyone that I've ever told I was a role-player that I might have told would really have – actually you know questioned it that much but i definitely had my own uh hang-ups about admitting that i did this thing that a i didn't really know how to explain to people i mean i still 
you know, I call it collaborative storytelling. I call it, you know, improv with rules. I call it all <laughs> kinds of things to try to explain what it is. But it, until they do it, nobody gets it. <laughs> like a I'm sorry? This, I said, do you ever have to reduce it to Dungeons & Dragons? Because I sort of, when people ask me, I... I can't stop myself. I just always end up going through this dance where eventually I have to say, you know, like Dungeons and Dragons, and then they understand. Right? I'm like, I wish there was a way that I could. Well, but that's it. They they don't understand. They just have heard it and go, oh, that thing I've heard of, but they don't really know what it means. Um, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I try not to. I really try to fight the instinct to say it's like D and D. But sometimes it depends on how much I care about the person. Frankly, if I'm just trying to get them out of my hair, it's it's like D and D. So they'll leave me alone. Right. If it's somebody that I genuinely want to explain it to, because I either want them to know more about me as a person, or because maybe I hope that they'll be interested themselves, right. then I will go through painful efforts to try and explain the experience. Um, I organize a convention. Uh, and, and when I was talking with the hotel folks where to host it and I was telling them what it was like, Oh my God, I had to go through like so many iterations. Like, so do you, how many computers do you need for this? I'm like, no, it's not video games. They're like, so is it like fantasy football? I'm like, well, kind of, (laughs) sort of, I mean, I mean, I just had to keep going through and I'm like, look guys, we're going to be sitting at table telling stories to each other. I know you don't get what that means, but all you need to know is I need four tables in this room and we're not going to get drunk and burn down the place. All right. (laughs) And we're not going to be so loud that we wake up people in another building. Um, That's all you really need to know because I can't really explain it to you. You just don't get it. And, and that was, I mean, I went back, I went round and round and round with the hotel folks till finally I was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Fine. It's like fantasy football. Just like fantasy football. Yeah. So what's your role playing elevator pitch? And do you have a go-to example of play for somebody that you want to go the extra mile with? Cause you think they may perhaps be interested in being a gamer. I do, but Karen Tully stole it last week. I listened oh, to the episode, and I was right? like, I was like, I was like, curse her. That's my line. She took it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I tell people, I just, I just create a situation that I think is interesting to them. I try to kind of find like what genre or milieu they're they're excited about. Like if they happen to be Star Wars fans, I'll be like, all right, you know, you're a clone trooper, and you just like blown up a droid, and you've just been told like your best friend and your leader. Uh, you've just been told to turn on him. He's got a lightsaber. You got a blaster. What do you do? You know, and all the dudes next to you also have blasters, and they're turning on him. What do you do? And 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 like that's for the Star Wars fan, right? right. Karen used the like, you know, there's you're being chased and you have a gun. What do you do? You know right. that. But it's and 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 so I, I just try to throw people in situations that um, that are that feel familiar to them in whatever kind of yeah. you know fantasy relate, right? uh, scenario they can relate to. Um, and then I'll, I'll generally just say like, I'll generally just consider everything they try to do as like a partial success. I'm like, yeah, you do that, but there's some complication. Yeah, you do that, but there's some complication. So I'll just kind of keep, I'll just kind of keep, yeah, you, you climb over the fence. Like Karen's example is you see a fence. Well, okay, I climb over, you climb over the fence, but when you get to the other side, you see that you're in some kind of compound and there's spotlights. What do you do? You know, just like every time you do something, it leads to another situation until eventually you kind of go, okay, you finally reach a point of reprieve. Here's all the, here's all the um, the things that you kind of haven't haven't addressed yet. You've got a you know you've got a wound bleeding. You haven't been you have no cell phone service and you you know you're lost. And then kind of then kind of like ease off on this presentation of situations and just sort of ask the player a little more freeform. Now that I've given you all these cues, you tell me. You start initiating the action. Like okay, what do you want? You know, 
now there's all these situations. You can kind of interact with whatever one you want. You can try and cut up your wound. You can try and climb to the top of the tower to get cell service. You can, you know, do whatever you want. And I kind of take a more reactive role that the player become more proactive. And, you know, and a bit, you do that for like five minutes. You know, right. it's not an extended thing. Just kind of, you just kind of play back and forth. And then, uh, and then, and then I find most people are like, that's so cool. Right. It's like playing make believe. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of like yes, it football. Is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess that didn't work. So, what's your conversion rate then? Ah. Uh, I'd say uh, I'd say it's pretty high uh, for people that I've really made an earnest pitch. Um, probably probably fifty percent, oh, which I which I consider quite high. Yeah, I you, consider, like, doing, like, oh yeah, I don't think I could claim anything anywhere near that high. But uh, I was giving Karen a hard time for not uh, putting forward the face of the new the new face of gaming when she has the opportunity to explain to people what it's uh, what it's all about she said that she she couldn't really be bothered but it brings me to uh, something that I would that I had noticed when I was at Gen Con the last time and I, you may perhaps be able to give me an answer to this question um, I noticed that when I was making up the game I only made one female character which was a, a big mistake on my part because about half of my players were were female, and that was something that I certainly hadn't experienced before. Do you think there's a, a shift going on? Like there are more people getting interested in well, online that are girls? Well, I have some I have some interesting statistics in that um, Facebook tells me the demographic information on who likes my con because I have a I have a I have a uh, I have a page for Big Bad Con, right. and um, and it gives me demographics on uh, where they're from, what their age is, what their gender is. Um, so I only have a very limited, I only have a very limited, uh, stance because my con is small and, and, you know, I don't, I don't have a a huge sample pool, but of the 200 some odd people that like it, which is fewer than actually that attend, not everybody that attends actually likes it. Not everybody likes attends, but of the 200 some odd people that have clicked join or like, or whatever you click on Facebook to follow a follow a, a feed, a page, um, it is, it's about 70% male and 30% female. And that for a while was actually more like 66 and 33. Like it was almost exactly two thirds, but it's shifted just slightly. So right. it, it's still, I would say close to two thirds male. Um, uh, I, I, unfortunately that is just a snapshot in time. That is only saying right. in the 2011, 2012 era in my small sample of data, right. I can tell you we're looking at about 70%. Um, and my personal experience is certainly that there are more male gamers than female gamers, but I, I, I like to believe that gaming is um, inherently a social activity and it's inherently a communal activity, meaning it's like it's not something based on hierarchy. No. There, is, there is hierarchy of the GM and the players, but I find that as gaming, as I get more and more into kind of like hippie indie games where authorities are spread out more, where yes. one person isn't like both the narrative authority and the rules authority and the, and the, and the location authority where, where, where people kind of get to spread those out, um, the game is more communal and less hierarchical. And I, and I think that and, – uh, and, I, and I hope I'm not being horribly sexist here. This is just sort of my, my very uh, armchair psychology – yeah, is that is that women uh, 
interact very well in communal environments rather than hierarchical environments. I think men tend to gravitate towards hierarchical environments. And, and gaming is, by its nature, more communal than hierarchical. I mean, even if you say that there's a hierarchy between GM and players, um, there's, there's still not a hierarchy between players. You know, oh, yeah. players are ostensibly all equal. So yeah. it seems to me that gaming should be very attractive to women. Mm. Uh, I think there are, unfortunately, some negative stereotypes associated yes. with it, which might scare yeah. Well, any gamer, but particularly a female gamer yeah. away, which is the socially awkward male who's going to put make advances on you yes. when you have no interest in them at all. Yeah. Um, so I think that that might scare away potential gamers, but uh, it seems to me that at its core, the social element of gaming, which is which is gaming, yes. uh, should be very attractive to to women. Yeah, that's that's an interesting paradox. Um, that you've brought up there, and I think it goes back to the first role-playing games. My suspicions are that it would be a girl thing if it had been, uh, and the initial game had not been so m- much more a sort of role, if it hadn't come out of miniatures gaming, essentially, like no role-playing, yeah. all dice. And as... If it had come from improv, yes. if you know, so you look at miniatures and improv and you say gaming's sort of in the middle, if it had come from the improv side, mm. I bet it would be predominantly female. Yeah, and that's the, the paradox because you get people, the stereotype, it's just, it, I can't get my head around it. And maybe you've got some ideas here that I haven't considered, but I can't get my head around the fact that it's a crude, a stereotype of being socially maladjusted, socially awkward males playing a game which, as you said before, is predominantly social, which I think without too much risk of being accused of being sexist is social things are more interesting to women or at least social interactions are more interesting or more fulfilling to women than they are to men. Uh, so, And yet it's a game played mostly by males and it's a game that to a greater or lesser extent requires a lot of empathy, at least in terms of with your character, it requires you to, be, to have social interactions with people. And yet as soon as that game stops, it goes to being a people, a group of people that are not able to A, empathise because they're unaware of the ways they're making other people com- uncomfortable, or B, are not confident <laughs> in dealing with people. It just, I can't get my head around it. Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing I can really, I, I don't know that I can explain it, but the only sort of avenue that I can see into it is that um, it's a fringe activity. It's certainly not, um, it, it's certainly not uh, mainstream by any stretch of the imagination. And a fringe activities are always uh, a haven, I think, for folks that sort of don't feel that they fit within the mainstream spectrum. So, so I mean, um, I feel like I'm a fairly socially adept person, but my interests are really not, you know, sports or they're not fancy football. or no, no, or or dancing with the stars or. I don't know. I mean, I, I have some very, I have some very mainstream interests. I mean, there's lots of TV shows that I love, but, but I mean, I don't, I don't know that I relate to some of the most common, most popular sort of pastimes there. And um, gaming, in in conversely, is something I, I, I live, breathe, and love. You know, it's it's a huge part of my life. Um, but I think that it is welcoming to to people that possibly you don't have the sort of social uh skills um to participate in more mainstream activity I, I, possibly or you know it, it are you familiar with uh, uh geek social fallacies gsf no i'm, I'm not 
I highly recommend it's it's kind of depressing actually to read geek social fallacies, but it's all these sort of weird social agreements that we've made, which is like, since you're a geek and since you're an outcast, it's unacceptable to not accept anybody else. Like since, you know, since, since we're all on the fringe, we all have to like each other. And and that's absolutely not true. Just because someone's a gamer doesn't mean I like them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and yet we feel this compulsion to like, Oh, we should let that person game with us because they really want to play. And I'm like, but I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. So why would I want to spend my favorite, my spend my precious time doing my favorite activity with them? Why? Why? why, You know, like, uh, I wouldn't want to go dancing with them. I wouldn't want to watch a movie with them. And I care about dancing and movies less than I do about gaming. So, yeah. Don't. How does that make sense? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Because maybe you were scared you're going to be the one thing that makes them grab a rifle and go around shooting people. Perhaps. <laughs> so uh, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? Uh, and this is not you get to play your favorite character in your role-playing game, but boom, you are actually a character in a role-playing game. What would you choose to be? Well, this probably doesn't surprise this probably, from everything I've said in this interview so far, this probably doesn't surprise you all that much, but I am intensely driven towards characters with conflicts, internal conflicts, um, that, that, that make their life difficult at every turn. Right. Um, and I, I think the most, for me, one of the most uh, iconic ver- uh, of those conflicts is the external conflict versus the internal one, specifically the duty to your Lord versus your personal sense of honor, um, which should in a perfect world, line up perfectly, and yet in most cases are always, if not opposed, certainly uh, clashing at levels. So if I could be anybody, it would be a Rokugan samurai chopping off heads for my lord and hating myself for it. (laughs) That's it. it. All right. Okay, well, I've got one more uh, one more question here before we talk about the uh, talk about your your con here, which is, um, do you have dice superstitions? Um, I, I work very hard not to. Um, I, I am unfortunately a superstitious person by nature. Oh. Um, my intellectually, I don't believe my superstitions should hold any value. Um, I, I don't particularly believe in anything supernatural myself, and yet I. A hold to all kinds of ridiculous superstitions. I, I lift my feet up when I drive over railroad tracks. I hold my breath when I go through tunnels. <laughs> I tap the ceiling of my car when I see a, a car with one headlight. Um, <laughs> I do all these other sort of ridiculously superstitious things. Yep. And the reason why is that I consider myself an extremely lucky person. I've had so many things in my life work out so well for me. Um, and I don't know why that is. Right. except for to say that I'm a lucky person. So I don't like computer dice rollers. I like physical dice right. because somehow I feel that, that my luck transcends to them, right. whereas it doesn't when I click a button on a computer. Right. Um, so I uh, so so I have lots of superstitions in general, and the, my general superstition is that when I need to be lucky, when, 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 when I'm at a point in my life where I really, really need something, it, yeah. it somehow works out. Right. And, uh, and, and I felt that with dice many times. Like I really need this. I need to hit this roll. Like it's so <laughs> important to me and it's out. And sometimes it hasn't, you know, I mean, so the, last night I, I lost that, that duel. Uh, no, no, I just sort of, uh, I used to, I used to, I actually had a, I have old whole, whole old set of dice that I had for different activities. And then I lost them all. <laughs> I lost every single die I owned. 
uh, and bought a whole new set, and now they're all the same. They're very pretty, but they're all the same. So let's get on to uh, Big Bad Con here. Um, so sure. tell me a bit about it. I, I was on the impression that this was the first year for it, but it's been running for a number of years? No, it's, it just won. So it, it ran it ran last October. Right. Um, so this will be year two right. coming up. Uh, Big Bad Con is kind of a boutique of a con. It's small. It focuses only on role-playing, well, role-playing and LARPing. Um, there is an open gaming section so people can play board games, but my passion and my love is role-playing, and I'm pretty OCD about organizing things, and I feel that by combining that love for uh role-playing and my compulsive organizational drive that I can offer the best con in existence for, 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 for gamers. Um, I work really hard to make sure that we have a great offering of games, to make sure that the signups are smooth and easy. Um, they're all done online. They're all done in advance. You know exactly what you're going to get into. Um, the games are all organized. That there's not too much overlap, so that you can be presumably gaming all weekend long without going. Oh, I got into this game, but it runs an hour into the next one, so now I can't play anything in the next once I get out of this. Um, it's uh, and I have a lot of support from people that I think add a lot of value to the con. Like last year, we had a band that was Nerd Rock, and they played like Conventional Lover and Re Your Brains and all these like gamer rocks songs and like what con has a band and a nerd band at that like where does that happen it doesn't like i just but i know people that was like hey can you guys like make a band for me and they did it um i have this this gming contest that's like iron gm but because someone else has already taken that name i'm calling it big bad gm but it's a contest of gms and people absolutely loved it um this coming year i'm gonna be doing big bad gm again and instead of the band this year we're going to have a workshop an improv for gamers workshop that we've done already before and it was a huge success mm-hmm. so we're gonna have an improv instructor come in and, and teach improv skills to gamers who could definitely make use of that I um so i think i think so yeah she mentioned mia doing that and um and mia has converted from improv to gaming now she i mean she still does improv but she's also a gamer as well now um so uh, I, I think I'm bringing like the best, most awesome events and the best games like Victoria um, to the con and uh, really creating a very boutique retreat kind of feel. Like I want people to come and be like, I spent a whole weekend being around awesome people, playing awesome games, having a great time and not my experience at some other cons, which is like, I'm around all these people that I don't know and I don't know really what they're doing because they're playing some other kind of game than I am and I don't really have any overlap. So I see people hit, hit and miss, but like, I don't generally feel like this is my home. This is my place. Right. Uh, I want people to feel like I went to this, to this, I went to this magical place right. where I got into all these games and they were all great. And now people were all cool. And, um, and to, to do that, I have to be kind of, uh, very critical about what, I allow into the con, you know, I'm, I have, I have sort of an indie bias, but it's not, it's not exclusive. I'm not, I'm not exclusively allowing any games. I just, I want games that are going to be beginner friendly, that are going to tell awesome stories that are going to, um, that are going to, uh, give players the opportunity to really jump into the game and, uh, you know, um, and, and, and really play it to the hilt right. and, and walk out of a four hour session and go, Whoa, 
fucking rocked. Yeah. So when you say it was sort of a boutique con, you mean really in terms of it's almost bespoke for the individual participant, but it's not necessarily something for somebody who is really um, very well versed in all the different role playing things. Like you would welcome beginners as well. Oh yes, yes. No, it's very beginner friendly. Uh, by boutique, I just mean that it's specifically role playing. You know, there's no board game part component of it. There's no miniatures gaming component of it, um, and that it is. Uh, you know, this is extremely biased. This is extremely uh, subjective, but but it is a very high quality of game, in my opinion. Like right. the, the games that, that the GMs that I solicit to run are people who I know run awesome games. Right. So, I, and I actively solicit them. I mean, I go to people that. That uh, that have run the games. Honestly, I would have solicited you. I just thought it would be unrealistic given the the, the distance. But as soon as you mentioned any interest, I was very excited to have oh, you. Yeah, I'm, I'm at very, the con keen to, very keen to go to the con just to catch up with you and yeah. with Karen, and also to uh, to sample some different independent games. I've, I've played a yeah. few con games myself. I mostly run them, but yeah. um, it's gonna, I'm looking forward to getting to the games this time as well. So, in terms of the location of it, if somebody was coming to stay at uh, the hotel that the con is at mm-hmm. um, is it hard or easy to get to places where there are where there's places to eat you know is it something that somebody's going to have to um budget a lot of money for or if they're sort of setting out how they're going to eat can they have mcdonald's and save a few bucks on the meal or uh yeah there's an there's in and out there's mcdonald's that are close by actually if you go to the site uh bigbadcon.com and you click on the hotel page it's got uh like 10 or 12 eateries that are walking distance um, I put out a bunch of surveys and I got about 200 because there's one per game so people could fill out them multiple times throughout the con. Right. Um, I got 280 or so responses oh, and it, the question was to rate you know, everything about the con including the amenities and the amenities got lower ratings than everything else. Um, on a scale of one to six, generally people felt the organization and the quality of the games was in like the high fives. You know, the average was like 5.7, yeah, wow. whereas the amenities were closer to, f- yeah, whereas the amenities were closer to like the mid fours, like 4.5. Sure. So there was definitely a disparity where people weren't totally turned off by them, but they weren't thrilled either. No. And I'm working with the catering staff this year to hopefully offer some better on-site food options so that people can get their food a lot of a lot of times people complain that the food is very slow and you know they were like i'm in a game i don't really want to wait a long time to get food and there's a restaurant there i'd like to be able to go there as long as the price is reasonable and the food is okay i'm fine with it but the price was okay the food was decent quality but the speed was very slow that's right it's the old uh, the old saw where you can have something good quality you can have it fast or you can have it cheap but you can't have all three you can only have two yeah choose choose two yeah choose two of the above so it it sounds like everything is uh, lined up for for a really great con and the fact you've taken the the trouble to survey people and find out what they liked what they didn't like and uh to address things that people had expressed uh, that they weren't as happy with as perhaps they could have been, I think is a testament to how seriously you take running a, a con that everybody's going to enjoy. And I, I for one, am certainly looking forward to it. Um, is there anything well, else you. about the, yeah, what are the people need to know, like the dates and so forth? Uh, yeah, let me give you a couple couple blurbs. It's October 5th to the 7th uh, this year, 2012. It's at the Oakland Airport Hilton. Uh, one of the things that the con desperately needs, it's the same thing last year that I, I need this year, that I very much need is for folks who stay at the hotel because one of the things that makes the con 
viable is renting 50 rooms. So, um, so if you're attending and you have the, you have the possibility, the option to, I ask that you, uh, please do get a room. If you go to the website, uh, bigbadcon.com, uh, there's booking information there and sign up information there. Um, if you'd like to be a GM, you can do that. I'll ask for six hours of GMing um, or more, which can be two four-hour games or six-hour game, an eight-hour game, uh, or as many of those combinations as you like. Um, and uh, we are going to be doing games on demand as well. So if you just want to say, well, I'll run games, pick up games on demand, there's an option for that. Um, and the, the con has... A uh, couple new, uh, one other new addition, which is last year I didn't have private rooms. I couldn't afford it. Uh, this year I've taken, uh, seen the success of last year's con, and I got nine private rooms. So some of the games will be in a boardroom space that are divided by pipe and drape, which is worked last year. It was okay. Um, there was there definitely a sound and a visual block, but it wasn't perfect. Um, but if you if you need a game in a private room, that is now an option. So. Um, that's that's a nice uh, improvement from last year. Um, I think I think that's about it. I'm I'm taking game submissions now, so you can go and submit your games. You can see what's already been submitted if you click on events. There's 22 games already submitted, uh, including Daniel's. Um, I'm very excited about what we have uh, in the roster. And so, for those that are running games, uh, do you have uh, any special dispensations in terms of cost of attending the con? Yes, if you if you run the the game the sort of the required amount of games that is if you run six hours of games you get the con your con fees are comped so there's no there's no charge. Um, but it's charity, that, right? That, so that said, yeah, thank you. Uh, that said, the con is a charity event. A, I give the a portion of the proceeds, a half, half the proceeds, to um, Doctors Without Borders. So. Um, uh, you know, the other half kind of is going to get rolled into next year's uh, con, like what happened last oh, year. So, exactly. So if you um, so if you do attend the con, um, you can feel very good about paying for the con. It's only forty dollars, which for a boutique con is, I think, very reasonable. Oh, forty dollars yeah. is a, a standard yeah. con, a standard con fee, and a lot of cons I don't think offer nearly the level of sort of personal uh, service that the, the big bad does. Yeah. But um, but if you are, uh, as Daniel is, uh, uh, the gentleman in the skull that he is, he's not only running games, he's also paying for attendance because it's it's going to a good cause, it's supporting an uh, uh, excellent charity. So. Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the the best value cons um, from from my experience uh, are the ones that have the personal touch. You get something like Gen Con, you'll get a lot of uh, opportunity to select things, but you've got there's no quality control over what you're going to go into. Yeah. So if you sign up for something, there's not necessarily a guarantee that the person's going to show up. I'm not trying to disparage Gen Con here, but when you're a large, sort of somewhat faceless um, convention, you don't have that same, uh, it's not the same attention to your personal enjoyment. But um, from everything you've said here, Sean, it seems like you go out of your way to make sure that every single individual um, is going to be assured of a good time and... Uh, and a, breadth, a selection of games, all of which you've personally vetted, which I, I can say is not something I've experienced at any other con. So I'm certainly very much looking forward to, to attending. And bigbadcon.com is the place people can go for more information yep. about that. Yep. And uh, we'll also have one of the things just hit me is, is that uh, besides Daniel, we're going to have a couple other game designers there. Um, they're not really – they're not – I'm very opposed to the notion of game designers sort of 
toting themselves around like celebrities, so there's not going to be panels, but they will be running. Uh, well, you're a celebrity in your own mind. Yeah. <laughs> Still, um, I'm a celebrity. The dog thinks I'm pretty cool. But... Uh, well, no, it's not that. I mean, I, I, I applaud you for for writing a game, and I think it's awesome. But I'd much rather you be there running your game than you be there having fans dote on you for having made, written it a game. It is tiresome, Sean. Yes, I have had enough of that. So, yeah, I think this will be a welcome yeah. change. So, so we've got Daniel. Uh, we also have Jason Morningstar uh, from Bully Pulpit Games. We've got Ryan Macklin and Lenny Balsera from Evil Hat. And we've got Josh Roby, who wrote Full Light, Full Steam, um, Sons of Liberty, and just recently Void Vultures and uh, Vicious Crucible. So we've got uh, a handful of designers there, possibly a few more rolling in. Um, and so, and, and they're all going to be running their games. So it's pretty cool that you have an opportunity to play in games run by the designers. Oh, yeah, there's nothing There's nothing quite like it. I played a game of uh, Burning Empires with Luke Crane um, at Origins oh, very the cool. year before. So that was that was certainly a, one of the highlights of my, my role-playing career. It's, it's never, without wanting to seem self-serving, there's nothing quite like playing a game in the way that the designer intended for it to be played to get a real feeling for... You know, not only the mood, but the way the mechanics should work and, and all that sort of thing. So, so I think that the opportunity to play in some of those games is is something that people should take advantage of, and and that's another good reason to enrol early, right? To sign up early and and uh, get your registration done so that you can get into those games. And then, of course, Indeed. the more games you get and get filled up early on, the more perhaps the more different games you might be able to offer as well. Yes, I try to try to keep the game selection kind of reactive so that. Um, early on, all the games are submitted. People can all see them. Then uh, September 1st, Game Reg opens up, and you can sign up for any game that has an open spot. And as I see games fill up, I then solicit GMs to try and run more of those games. So last year, Lady Blackbird, as an example, filled up in like two seconds. Excellent. There was four yeah. spots or five spots, and they were immediately filled. So I solicited GMs I knew. I said, hey, I need another GM to run another session of Lady Blackbird because it's clearly very in demand. And so I got a second one, and that one filled up. Um, nice. And so I very much, you know, Daniel, you said that you'd run your game multiple times. Yeah. I'm going to put it on the roster twice, and if they both fill up immediately, I'm going to put it on again. You right. know, so I'll, I'll try sure. to keep the 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 games, assuming I have tables for them, obviously, um, responsive to the players' demands. Right. Now, you're not just a uh, a con uh, organizer; you're also a podcaster, and I can thoroughly or wholeheartedly or any one of those uh, superlatively um, endorse Sean's podcast, Narrative Control. Uh, it's a little bit of a different format to, to, to this one, but uh, perhaps the people that listen here might enjoy that as well, Sean. Can you tell us a bit about Narrative Control? Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Uh, yes, um, Narrative Control is what I consider a first-generation gaming podcast. Um, uh, it's a little out of its time and that I started it as podcasting was, uh, sort of changing focus. Um, the original podcasts, uh, which I based off of, um, the Durham three sons of cryos, uh, have games will travel. were all podcasts that looked at elements of games and discussed them, um, and, and, and sort of. Uh, talked about what worked and what didn't, and sometimes reviewed games, but most often just took uh, particular th- snags in play and, and, and talked about how to ma- how to hack a system or how to deal with a particular situation. Or, mm. uh, and, and so the uh, and that was 
in my opinion, that's a, a, a format that is no longer really in vogue, but it's what I like. Uh, I keep the episodes pretty short, and I pick a topic each each episode, and and we and me and my host. Uh, it's always done with the host because I don't really sound that good just talking to myself. Yeah. Um, uh, having having somebody to to play off, I think, is 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 crucial. Yeah, by yourself, it's uh, you get. I started to drone. I started listening to myself. So I'm just droning along. Like everything I'm saying is very measured and very careful, but it just it's just not, yeah. Uh, it's not at least you, people can't interact with it. Yeah. Uh, Paul Tevis and the dulcet tones of his voice are one of the few podcasts, uh, which is how games will travel. It's, it's now, it, it's, it's no longer being recorded, but there's over a hundred episodes and it's an excellent podcast. Um, he's one of the few people that can get away with it. But, uh, mm. in general, I find that having a host keeps a, keeps a show interesting and, and dynamic and, and helps the pacing of it, helps the energy level. Okay. Um, but uh, I just started my season three. Um, and I'm going to, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to pimp that just a tiny bit. Please do. Uh, every, se- every season I change the format sl- slightly, uh, sort of focus in a different area. Season three is um, a season where I'm looking for people to call in with uh, questions that they have about their game. Um, something that isn't working right or something they want to do and don't know how to handle it or uh, an ongoing problem that they've been having. And myself, uh, my co-hosts, uh, Leonard Balsera uh, and Eric Fatty. Uh, we'll yak about it with you. We'll spend 20 minutes, 30 minutes talking about our experiences with that same situation, uh, our speculations about your situation and what we think you can do. And then also in a more general sense, talk about how we think that affects games for other people, for the listeners and, uh, and how other people could respond to it. And so that's the, uh, that's the format of season three. So, uh, if you check us out, it. Uh, narrativecontrol.com uh, is the website, and if you go there, there's links to our email address, which is narrativecontrol at gmail.com. Email us or go to the forums and uh, and get in contact with me, or you can just contact me directly and let me know what your question is and if it sounds like one that would be good for the show. Um, generally, the criteria for that is that, A, we have some expertise in that area, and, B, it's not something we've already done. Right. Um, uh, if, if it passes those measures, then we'll have you on and we'll, we'll chat for a bit and you'll be part of the show. So it's so a chance for somebody to have their 15 minutes of, uh, of fame. 15 minutes of fame, yeah. That was a game I never made. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us here, Sean. It's been uh, a couple of hours well spent. And I, for one, I'm looking forward to Big Bad Con and for the next episode of Season 3, of narrative control and i'd love to have you on the show again closer to big bad con if you find that uh, you'd like to uh, absolutely i'd be happy to it was a real pleasure being on with you daniel and uh thanks so much and like i said before i'm really excited to have you at big bad uh i think it's gonna be great ladies and gentlemen sean Nittner. that's it for episode four of penny red check out pennyredpodcast.com for possibly the longest set of show notes that you're ever likely to see. Next week, we'll be talking with Chris Bailey, that's the Chris from In the Acknowledgements of Victoria. We talk about running great games, Mage the Ascension, and Chris generously shares how some of his gaming experiences intertwined with his journey of self-understanding and the process of coming out. Until next week, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.